Hi, I'm Wayne Deatter, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. The first thing I have to ask you, you play both bass and guitar. You yeah. started off with guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, in your mind, are you a guitarist or are you a bassist? Oh, God. No, I have an identity crisis, as I told you when I got here. I'm neither. I'm mostly a bass player, I guess. But uh, but you started off on the guitar. Yes, I did. I started off at nine years old or something like that. Because of why? Why did you start pick the guitar? You know what? Honestly, every man in my family, all my uncles, my dad, uh, my everyone played guitar but you know rudimentary you know country campfire guitar and I just thought that the like you were just supposed to know (laughs) or something I don't know but then I had another uncle who was really really into it we were only five years apart so we were more like brothers we spent a lot of time together and we picked it up together we would just jam literally for hours and hours and then we had a band together that was my first band was with him so musically though what were you listening to what were you jamming to or was it more family songs or songs you sang with the family well initially I grew up on country music you know but you know Hank Williams and also my parents were into Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly um a lot of country George Jones Tammy Wynette uh you know Merle Haggard Willie Nelson these were all really big in my house growing up so and also my parents like rock and roll you know they weren't and my mom liked the Beatles somewhat. But when John Lennon died, it was just Beatles. That's all I cared about. For right. And I was learning guitar, you know, at the same time. So the Beatles got mixed in with all of that. And then it became, you know, it stretched out to like The Who and Cream and Neil Young. I became a Neil Young fanatic to the point where I have a Neil Young tribute band as well. Or I did for years. Right. So... You know, I had a pretty broad range, and then it stretched out to Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan and the band and, you know, uh, just satellite. Robin Trower, I was big on, Peter Frampton, just crazy stuff. And then, of course, you know, through Cream, I had an introduction to blues music, too. Right. So, um, are we talking when Cream was around? Or oh, after? goodness, no. I was born in 69, so... Like, I was sort of the, the odd man out in high school. I mean, even the, the stoners, as it were, were listening to, like, Led Zeppelin. But I wasn't into Led Zeppelin. I like Cream and The Who and sort of this, you know, these sort of fringe rock bands rather than the sort of go-to guys. And, See, The Who's my favorite band, so I can't Oh, don't even afraid. get me started. I should be sending Pete Townsend a Father's Day card every year, honestly, <laughs> those songs. But, yeah, and he was a big influence on my guitar playing as well. Like the live at Leeds era. Same with bass playing too, you know. All right, so I don't know. Should I get into the bass playing now? Or <laughs> I'm I? not sure. I mean, yeah, <laughs> so, I know. It, it, you, see, now you have the identity crisis. Isn't this great? <laughs> okay, so nine, you, you pick up the guitar. Were you good? I had a knack for it, let's just say. I mean, I just kind of felt I could hear intervals and, and you know, I didn't have any theory. I was just trying to figure it out and you know people would show me a thing or two here and there and I had music books that I would look through just to learn rudimentary chords but then I started to get more serious about it because I realized you know maybe John Lennon isn't just playing a cowboy C there it sounds like he's doing you know and you start to slow the records down and do all of that and I switched to bass kind of when I was about 15 because my uncle and I had a band 
and we needed a bass player. We had two guitar players and a drummer, and he said, well, this is no good. <laughs> and what were you playing? I was what, playing guitar. Sorry, what kind of music were you playing? Uh, like Cream and okay. Neil Young and The Who and Beatles and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. We were just like misfits. We were, this is in the early 80s, so right. we were listening to music people didn't listen to, at least not in our age group. <laughs> So then uh, I was forced to play bass because I was the young kid, right? So you play bass. And I said, okay. So I kind of learned it rudimentary bass and then abandoned it altogether. And I actually didn't play for a number of years. I was working as a diesel mechanic. So I didn't, I was working afternoons, so I didn't do any gigs. I, uh, and then I started playing gigs again on guitar and then suddenly people needed bass players. And I just, I literally stumbled ass backwards into playing bass constantly because I just suddenly, I got a reputation in the blues community in my mid-twenties as a bass player. So who were you replicating or how did you pick up the bass that people started calling you for gigs? That's a good question. So there was a band in Oakville where I'm from called Chuck and the Cookies and they were sort of like like a suburban blues band, you know? And they constantly needed a bass player. And they knew I had a bass rig. So they said, well, well, come play bass. So I would. And then this jazz player from Toronto, jazz blues guy named Michael Keith, who's a brilliant guitar player. He lives out west now. uh, Took me under his wing because he would sub on that gig sometimes. And then he lived in the city and had his own gigs. So he started hiring me on bass. And I was atrocious. I was the worst bass player. Just the absolute worst (laughs) bass player. And this is like mid-90s, you know. And why why do you say that? Because I have to be honest, you know, I hadn't really made a study of it per se. But of course, then I moved to Toronto because I wanted to be a full-time musician. And the only gigs I seemed to have were bass gigs. So I said, well, then I better get it together, you know. So I started going watching local guys, you know. There was a guy named Rich Levesque, who's still in Parkdale, I think. Uh, Ian D'Souza, who you've had on the show. Uh, Like, these guys were my heroes. I used to go and watch the Sisters with the Sisters Euclid every week and... Because they were just starting that Orbit Room gig. And, you know, like, th- this was my school. I couldn't afford to go to Humber or anything. So I just said, I was a kid from the suburbs. I'm going to go watch these so geniuses. When, when you, know? you go on a Thursday night or whatever to the Orbit Room and see Ian play, how do you learn? What do you get out of that, watching oh him God. play? Um, I noticed that he had impeccable time. Uh, and also he didn't slap, but he could play funky, really, really funky. And I'd never heard anybody play bass like that. Plus he was just a complete technician. He could play any music, uh, world music, jazz, uh, and you know, and he played with Kevin Bright. I mean, if you can play with Kevin Bright, God help you. <laughs> There's something wrong with you, you know? And I, to be honest with you, if we're talking about Ian, I was so intimidated by him for years and years. I hope he hears this, that I, like I just, I was intimidated by him because of his playing and just the way he looked while he played seemed to be a little terrifying, you know? So I was so afraid to talk to him for years. So you never approached him? Never. I was too, I was petrified of the guy. So years later, we were in Salmon Arm. I was out there with Bo Skill and and, uh, the sisters were there. And uh, with um, John, the singer. Oh God, I can't believe I, remember they did a record together, John and the sisters. Uh, John oh, Dickey. John Dickey, yes. So I got to know Ian out there, and my gosh, we got... You so know, this is the first time you... This is the first time him. I actually got close to him, you know, and oh, we had a great time out there. And we, you know, 
I think the Neville brothers were on the main stage that year. Oh, we just partied the whole group of us, you know. So, yeah, I just started listening to local guys. Plus, I had my own guys. I had McCartney and I had Entwistle and I had Jack Bruce. And, and then, you know, I started listening to upright players, uh, Paul Chambers and, you know, just everything. I was a sponge. I was in my mid-20s and I was staying up all night and drinking and going and watching some of the best music that Toronto had to offer at the time. And but, just, but is it know. easy to watch and learn? To it look is. at Ian and say, I, that's, is it like, I need to learn how to do that? Or It's like, I better get good, really. It was more just, you know, well, I'm, and what I did is I went home and just played to a metronome. I, if I had nothing else, I didn't have the theory, but I knew I could get, get good time, which was the most important thing. And then, you know, Around that period, I, I got a gig with Big Daddy G, which was Dave Glover. He was a guitar player who was like a computer guy who had some money and could play guitar. You know, right. not great, but good, you know, really good. And he did a record with Hawk Walsh and um, Joe Toole from The Phantoms. And like he had some great guests on there. This is the Topless. <clears throat> uh, before Topless, okay. it was called Four Blues, I think. Okay. So he needed a bass player for the CD release party. So and you I, weren't in the. I wasn't in. Recording. I wasn't on that record. It was Harpo Peterson, who I saw okay. on the weekend, actually, for the first time in ages. So, but he couldn't do the CD release. So uh, I was recommended to Tortoise Blue, the harmonica player, by Michael Keith. He said you should get my friend Wayne. He's a great bass player. So then, voila! I'm in the blues community now. Okay, so at this point, are you confident as a blues bassist? I'm more confident, but not entirely. You know, I had a long way to go. Okay. I still, I, I mean, literally, I'm not, con I wasn't half confident with my bass playing until about 42 years old. You know, it took oh, that yeah. long to really just settle in and feel all right. Just in time for arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. up until then, then what are you thinking? If you're not confident, how does that, what does that feel like? Um, you know what? It's really, I mean... I'm sure a lot of musicians feel this way. You just, you know, you're self-conscious, you're not confident, so it just drives you to work harder. That's all it was. I just wanted to be better all the time. And I was fortunate. I mean, with Dave Glover, I played with the best, literally mm -hmm. the best. He would get the best drummers to sub in, or Gene Hardy would play sax, or Hawk Walsh, he, you know, I was right. playing with the singer from Downchild. And, and then Dutch Mason, we did gigs with Dutch Mason, who was a legend, you know who also was, grew up with my father's family. So I had that connect. It was just a great time, you know? So at this point, are you a full-time musician? Yeah. Starving, yes. <laughs> Starving. Completely. That's how bad I really, truly was. Going into major debt and not caring. And you decided, and, I'm going to move to Toronto, just yeah, gig. Just do whatever. Play for $25 a night at Grossman's. Sorry, Grossman's. Uh, it was some probably more than that, but it didn't feel like it. Uh, yeah, I whatever. I was taking every gig I could get, you know, just everywhere on Queen Street, lugging my gear, getting parking tickets, having stuff stolen like everyone else. Um, was there chops. a plan? No, there was no plan. Hanging on for dear life, you know. Did it feel like you're hanging on for dear life? Or no, did it just not feel at like all. You know, you're in your work. 20s. Did it feel like you were hanging on for dear life in your 20s? <laughs> Honestly, except for maybe the drinking at one point. It got a little out of hand. But, you know, other than that, it was just like, it felt great. But then, look, the shit hit the fan, and I had to get a job. I had to go back to the suburbs with my tail between my legs and admit that, you know, 
I wasn't John Diamond and I wasn't, you know, Ian D'Souza. I was, you know, a suburban guy. So I did that. I went back. The problem was, is when I went back to work, I got bigger, busier than ever. So what made you decide that that's what you had to do? And at what point did you do this? I was broke and it was the early 2000s. So before we go there, yes. can we, oh, I guess the early 2000s. So you played with Big Daddy G from 95. About, right. about yeah. 97 or 98, I think, until okay. 2005. Okay, so, and that band was getting some momentum, were they not? Or is that just what I was picturing? No, they got, I mean, as much momentum as you can get in Canada, really, mm-hmm. uh, in the blues community. I think, you know, we got a Juno nomination. Tortoise won Harmonica Player of the Year from Maple Blues. And we did Mike Bullard. I mean, we were doing good. We were doing okay, you know. I wasn't, I mean, you know, there's hundreds of dollars to be made in the music business, as Donnie Walsh said. (laughs) I'm a hundred air. There's not, you know, we were, you know, Dave had a safety net. So I don't think he was too worried about the financial end as much as he was just, you know. At the same time, because he had that and he ran his business, did that limit the band from doing taking on more possibly i mean i he certainly didn't seem like he wanted to tour or anything and when i was out west i would often try and get him gigs at the yale or something but it never did materialize so maybe that did hinder his progress a bit but people were aware of him when when i did start hitting the road people knew who he was out west you know he had a reputation okay so who are you hitting the road with bo skill i was touring with jimmy bo skill more than anyone really at that that earlier time uh about 2005 Okay. Right after my dad died, I got a call from... And I. what happened was, is Jimmy Boskill was a kid, as you know. Yeah. Real prodigy, and he was really making headroads. He had a great band, too, Al Cross and Alec Fraser and uh, uh, Jerome. Right. So Jerome was busy, so they got Tortoise, because Tortoise wasn't busy, as right. busy, and Tortoise could play keys, too, so they had that, you know, element. And then... Alec Fraser was playing with Jeff Healy, so he was busy. So they needed somebody to go out west, like in an emergency situation, and Tortoise recommended me. So I got the songs back when CDs had to be traded. I had to drive up to, you know, wherever it was, Oshawa, to grab some a CD of this. So I learned the songs on a Tuesday, and we flew out Thursday. And what is that like? <clears throat> Crazy. Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, mean... you're it, still doing that. It wasn't like I hadn't done it before. Right. You know, I have my own system. Everybody has their system. You know, I don't like to have charts. I have cheat sheets. And I really just try and absorb the material as much as possible. I just listened and wrote stuff down that I needed to know, which, of course... So we had three gigs. We played two gigs on Vancouver Island and then one at the Yale right. on Sunday afternoon. And, of course, I leave my charts on the, the ferry. <laughs> Like an idiot. So, you know. Okay, so uh, then what happens? When you leave your charts, are you, you fly, totally lost? I, I flew by the seat. And you know what? The thing was is I think I knew it pretty good by then because we'd done the two gigs right. on the island. And Jim was Jim's a genius. He's the best musician in the country. I'm sorry, but he is. Well, he he's started just, so young. Yeah, but he's always had yeah. something. I mean, I played with him from the time he was about 15. He just turned 15. And it was ridiculous. It was crazy. Yeah. Like on the plane ride out west, he was listening to Satchmo and music from Big Pink. You know, I wasn't listening to music from Big Pink until <laughs> I was 21. You know, like I didn't get that together. He was really together. Yeah, Plus, was I mean, together. he could play a multitude of instruments then. I remember there was a four-string banjo 
hanging on the wall in Duncan, BC, when we got there. And he knew how to play it. He could play Kala style and did, you know, some Doc Watson songs that night. And the guy gave it to him. <laughs> and he would get instruments given to him in every town because he would pull it off the wall and play it. And they go, oh, you've got to have that. So, yeah. and he could play, like, I mean, I played with him a long time. I got his demos. He's playing drums and bass and keys and horns and guitar. And like, he's just, and now, of course, he's playing three instruments, other instruments with Blue Rodeo. Yeah. So, you know, he's a pretty talented guy. So even back then, it was like, you know, it didn't matter if I didn't know the songs. He could guide me through pretty good. And it was a good band. It was me and Al Cross and Tortoise Blue. Like, that's a pretty good little yeah, band, sure. you know. I didn't, I wasn't, those guys could hold me up pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so around 2005, unfortunately, Dave Glover got in a car accident and he the did, band yes. was over. Yes. How horrible is that? Terrible. Terrible. Because this just happened out of the blue. and It did. I had left his band about a year before. Oh, okay. Uh, so he had done an album that's in the can somewhere with Jerome Godbout and I think Lance Anderson and Al Webster, Shane Scott maybe on bass. And uh, I don't think it's ever been heard. I wonder what, where it is or who has it. Uh, but we had been talking about doing some gigs together because we were still community. Like, it wasn't like, you know how it is when bands split up. It's not amiable for 15 minutes and then you're you know back in the same places. Actually, I don't know how it is. Is it like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, with Dave, it wasn't. It was just more, you know, I was getting busy with Jimmy Boskill. Right. And, you know, I was kind of like, I thought it had run its course with me and... Um, yeah, so I had been communicating with him a few days, about four days before, and then Tortoise phoned me. I just got back from Europe, actually, from touring with Jim. Right. And Tortoise said, yeah, Daddy's dead, because we called, he called him yeah. Daddy. I'm like, what? are you kidding? Like, it was. It was terrible. And he had two girls that right. he loved dearly. Oh, my God, he loved those girls so much. So, yeah, it was It's always shocking, you know. And so young and such a... Such a tragedy. Horrible. And, you know, he it was a head-on collision, which is even more... At least it was quick, I guess, but yeah. just more like... And he was so... I, I think he was in his early 40s or something. Yeah, it was awful. And, I mean, that, that effectively did it. And, and it's such a shame because Dave was such a really big proponent of blues music in this country. He put on a, a bunch of shows that he would promote where he would get Jack DeKaiser or Michael Pickett or, you know, people like that. It was really quite... He had a thing going, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it bears mentioning that I did play with Michael Pickett for a period, too. Right. And that, you know, I should also mention Mike Branton, who is a probably my favorite blues guitar player in the country. Him, Teddy Leonard, and Garrett Mason, I think. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> but those are my favorites. Opinions are like assholes. So... Uh, Mike, I've been friends with since he was a kid, you know, since we were kids. So we grew up together and we played guitar together in bands. And then now he uses me as a bass player. So what's and, it like to know somebody that long and, and to still play with them? Like, oh, it's beautiful. It's, it makes me, it makes me well up, honestly, because so many people have died and so many things have transpired. Like, especially with Mike, uh, you know, we were growing up together and learning guitar together and then he started using me on bass, and then I just got—I moved to Toronto. I got busy. We didn't see much of each other, and 
when I stopped touring, uh, I hadn't seen much of Mike for years. And he was playing in a club with a, a trio, and he called me and said, do you want to get back together with the same trio we used to play with Michael Pickett with? Which was, you know, 20 years ago. Wow. And I said, yeah. And we've been doing that ever since. We actually did a couple records together, you know. I know I had, I think it's his first album with the feet. Yeah. I'm on that, that one That's too. That's a good album. That's a great album. Mike is a highly underrated. He's a great songwriter. He's a great singer. He's a great guitar player. There's a groundswell of people who, I mean, every musician I know who, who knows him says that he's the bee's knees. Because he is. He's unbelievable. So, know? I don't know if it's fair to talk about him, but why do you think he's so underrated or not known? Is it his doing or is it... Probably, you know. I remember, you know, I don't know if I should say it, but I guess it's common knowledge probably. Like Jeff Healy wanted him to play with him around the Philip Sace time. Right. Jeff was at a lot of his gigs. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure. You know, maybe like it's Mike a self-designed. Into... Mike has managed to build himself the exact niche he wants, and he's always done exactly what he wanted to do, right. which I really respect. Like, you know, I've often had to play with some people that, you know, maybe I needed the money or whatever, because, you know, you do. Right. Uh, I don't think he's ever done that. I don't think he's ever, ever sacrificed integrity for anything, you know, which I really respect. And... I mean, he does have a reputation. I do great gigs with him, you know. I've done some great festivals with him. and I mean, there's enough people that know who he is that he makes it work, right. you know. Okay, so when you said you stopped touring, now I'm just trying to figure out which way we should go. Yeah, chronologically, I'm moving around. That's fine. But, okay, you, you came to Toronto, wanted to be a full-time musician. You decided that wasn't happening. You went to the, back to the suburbs, and then you said you started getting a lot of calls. Yes, but at that point, you're now working... Full-time. Full-time. Sorry, so, full-time music, music or No, full-time in an automotive parts department as, and, a, as a parts manager. Okay, so this is a conversation I've had with many musicians about being a full-time musician versus being a part-time musician. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you consider yourself a part-time musician. Part-time. I know you have a full-time job, but mm -hmm. you're gigging a lot. I do, yeah. Like... So you worked all day today, and you're going to gig tonight? Yes. And tomorrow you'll feel pretty good? No. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. But, you know. You How do... many gigs are you doing this week? Uh, okay, well, this week's actually not bad. I only played Saturday, and I'm playing tonight, which is a Monday. So it's not so bad. And then I have this coming weekend off. I've had a really weird run of gigs because I had to lift a lot of songs over the past few weeks. But now it's... I can coast a little bit. So you know. explain, lift a lot of songs? Okay, so, all right, I had, I subbed for Dennis Pinhorn with the, the last waltz, Lance Anderson's thing. Okay, so they called you and said, we need you to play guitar. Bass on that. Oh, on bass. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, Lance, well, I mean, if I'm honest about it, I really coveted anything in that band. I would have played tambourine in the last waltz. I didn't care. I, just, I really love the band and right. that record was in my blood you know so Lance I have a series in Oakville so I had Lance as the guest and I, I you know I kind of begged him a little bit probably and he emailed me and said you know because he usually gets Russ Boswell as the first call sub but Russ is doing the sting play so thank you Russ and thank you 
Dennis for having surgery. I'm there. I am. So I. It was like a dream come true. You know. But you had to work. But I had to learn every one of those tunes, <laughs> which you, was not so bad actually. It was a labor of love. So do you just go through the whole Last Waltz album, or do you listen? Like, is it that's what you're learning, or do you learn something else according to how Lance's band plays? Well, this is the thing. Lance is super together. He he one of the best band leaders I've ever worked for where and, and MDs because he he gives you the versions that you're learning from and the charts differ very moderately right. you know like maybe there'll be a breakdown section that wasn't you know on the record other than that it's pretty much sticks to what the versions he sends you on mp3s in order you know so I, it was really easy to learn it and be you know Whatever version he decided we were going to do was there, and you learn from that version, and that's where everybody collects. And just everything was just put together so nicely that it wasn't a lot of work for me. Right. And you know these songs. They're in my body. They're part of me. And, you know, I used to go see Rick Danko and Garth Hudson year after year after year at the Horseshoe with Colin Linden every year when they came. And then, you know, the year Robbie Robertson came out and played with him, I, I was there, right at the front, watching it. So going through these songs and, and the MP3s, mm-hmm. what did you learn about Rick Danko? Anything new, or is this just... Tons. <laughs> of course. Did, any surprises? like Lots. Uh, just, you know, I mean... From a technical aspect, I mean, the way he harmonized, he didn't always play root notes. He played beautiful harmony notes, and also he played a lot on top, really on top. And uh, I don't know, he just had a really, he didn't play to the kick drum, hardly ever. Often his bass would play to his vocals. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, up on Cripple Creek. So the chorus is up on Cripple Creek, so the bass is going up on Cripple Creek, she sends me if I spang a leak. It's phrasing with his vocal. So it was really interesting to learn that he played a lot with what he was had to sing. Does that make sense? Is it just... I mean, no, you, musically it doesn't. Bass players generally try and... No, but as a singer-bass player, do you think oh, that Oh, yeah, would, totally. It does. <laughs> when I, especially when I had to try and sing and play, I went, wow, this makes it much easier. And I see why you did this. But it also, because it's pushing where the drums are not. And it creates this really neat tension that you don't really notice until you're listening to it over and over. And you realize, wow, these guys really had this whole rhythm section thing together, you know. I mean, I always knew they were geniuses to me right from the start. But Well, they changed music, right? They do. They did. And I, I mean, that night, playing with all those different artists must have been just completely daunting. Yeah. And, you know. Okay, so how easy is it for you to recognize these patterns and these things you need to learn and to actually apply them at the gig a week later or whatever? Rick Danko wasn't so bad. Again, I grew up with it, you know. When he started as a guitar player, I started as a guitar player. So there wasn't that much disconnect, you know. I really felt comfortable. But there's other gigs. Like I also had to play with Johnny Max on the weekend, who I played bass for for years, but I was playing guitar so I had to rethink. It was weird. It was very weird. <laughs> All right. You know? So I always see you as a bass player. Mm. But when, so how does that happen when you get a call saying, can you play guitar? Because I know you play guitar in other bands. Yeah. 
I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. I really don't. I don't. I really don't consider myself that strong of a guitar player, but strong enough that I can do gigs and you know be a, a good addition at times. You so know. So what's a, what's your weakness? Is it playing lead or is it rhythm or what? Why, when you say you don't feel, I don't know. I just feel like I'm sort of a, a, a I'm not as multi-dimensional, let's say, and I'm not as compelling as a lot of guitar players. I I can get good tone and play well and but you know I play with a lot of great guitar players <laughs> a ton this country is overwrought with guitar players really great guitar players why bother why why would I you know there I mean not to say that there's not a lot of great bass players no. I mean there's a million bass players who are geniuses you know so I could rattle off a hundred right now when you, you know? when you when you're thinking are you thinking as a bass player or a guitar player I when I'm playing a... guitar. Yeah. Hmm. I'm like, like, a... like if you spoke more than one language, and you think which is the language you think with, right? Like, is it English? Is it French or whatever? But in musical terms, do you think in terms of a bass player, or or is that totally That's a, a really totally good question? You know, I. It's funny. I became a better guitar player when I started playing bass and taking it seriously, because I started to realize the guitars roll more. So I think I'm probably thinking about bass a lot, no matter okay. what I'm doing, because I, I, I don't know. I just kind of feel like guitar is something that floats around on top more than anything when I'm playing it, you know? I just try and color things up a little bit more than anything. Or when, when someone's soloing, I just try and fill the space between their phrases or whatever, you know? And what's his soloing ability like on the guitar? Uh, it's okay. It's, uh, you know, I know my pentatonics and I, I play a little bit goofy. <laughs> it was all those Mondays with Kevin Bright, you know? Like, what my guitar playing is like is a really bad guitar player's version of Kevin Bright. <laughs> well, you could do a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I could do a lot better. Um no, I mean, it's a mix mash. Like, when I play rock, I sound like a blues guitar player. And when I play blues, I sound like a rock guitar player. So I don't know what I am. I'm, I'm okay, you know. Uh, but if, okay, so Johnny calls you and says, I need you as my guitar player. Is that, you automatically say, yeah, I want that gig. Or do you think, oh, I'm more of a bass player? Well, I did go, really? <laughs> but uh, then he explained, he, he has John Finley, who's a genius and genius guitar player yeah. and really dexterous and has ability out the yin yang so i was sort of saying hmm what's my role then and he said well you know he's sort of like you know the orchestra and you're like the grit and you're like keith richards and i said okay that's exactly what i'll do that sounds good to me you know i'll just sort of be the guy grinding away or the edginess and, and these are songs because you were in the band before as a bass player mm -hmm. i would presume these are songs you well, well he know. did do an album without me right but which i had to learn a bunch of and the guitar player on that record was kevin vino let me tell you that wasn't fun <laughs> <laughs> that guy's crazy good too so, but you know i had finley there it was just more than anything it was an experiment for johnny i think i think he just wanted to see what would happen and how did it feel for it you? was great it was fun you know and it was great to play with finley i haven't played with finley in a couple of years so it was it was nice and jim casson and you know it's old home week and uli was playing bass so it was a really fun okay so you know, now you're playing with uli 
who's a great bass player. Amazing. But tell me what that's like when maybe you're thinking I'm kind of a bass player. I've played these songs, and there's another guy playing those songs that that's, you used to play. You know, I'll tell you this. Okay, so playing with Uli was great because Uli is a monstrous bass player. And he's a great stay-at-home defenseman, too, you know. He can really hold a groove. And as a guitar player, I've been blessed. All the bass players I've played with, I've, oh, man, I've played with my heroes, you know. I played with Terry Wilkins while playing guitar. That was a dream come true. And, I mean, I can't think, but i played with so many great, like, my heroes, literally. Um, but sometimes when I'm playing... And it's not in the blues community, so I, I'm not too worried about saying this, but sometimes when I'm playing bass with some guitar players, I really just want to wrangle that instrument out of their hands and play it <laughs> instead of them. doesn't happen with bass players, but guitar players drive me bonkers. Because? Some of them just don't have a handle on it, man. It's a, it's a very, very delicate, intricate instrument, and some people just... And I'm not talking about blues at all. Right. I, I don't think I've played with a blues guitar player that doesn't get it. But there's a lot of rock gods in the suburbs, let me tell you. And, you know, it's okay. It's fine. But, you know, when I really needed the money, I was playing with some <laughs> rock gods who, you know... I, again, it sounds terrible, but I just really wanted to wrangle the guitar out of their hands. Please stop. Do you think you're more of a blues player than a rock player? No. As, as, as a guitar player, certainly not. I'm, I'm not a blues guitar player. I wish. Okay. It's such a beautiful genre, and I wouldn't even claim to know how to do it justice. It's You've a, mentioned the concept of suburbs versus, I don't know, is it downtown? I don't, but tell, is there a difference? What's the difference in your mind? There used to be. I'm starting to find that there isn't. You know, Toronto's getting so difficult for musicians now. Right. I can't even imagine living here now. I don't know what I would do. I feel so bad for these people. And I always urge them, come to the suburbs. There's some gigs and, you know. Uh, so the thinking is that living in, in the city back then, you could get more gigs. There were more opportunities. Now yeah. there are less opportunities. I think there is. I mean, I can't speak to the city. I frankly don't play in Toronto very much. I don't think anybody does. Or Hamilton even. I mean, you know, a lot of my gigs are just sort of festivals or out my way. And, you know, I have my little cartel of things that I do. Uh, and I have a series that I do too. So that and that's my excuse to get all of my heroes and friends in. And I get to play with them without having to go on the road or do anything silly. Tell me about the series. Um, well, I also, in, as a guitar player, I've been playing with this trio since the mid-90s, uh, Mike Montgomery and Scott Apted, guys from the suburbs like me, but really, really great musicians. So years ago, Mike, the bass player, he was a guitar player, and he played with this guy named Dan Gallagher. So does he have an identity crisis as well? He does, okay. yes. Uh, we all do. So... He played with Dan Gallagher, who at the time was a much music VJ and, right. and, you know, that sort of thing. So he was a personality and he got all these corporate gigs. So he had ringers in his band. He would get Gordy Johnson or he would get uh, uh, Andy Curran, Jerome Godbu, all these guys that played with him at one point. So uh, he had a gig in Long Island in the Hamptons, really good gig, if you know what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And uh, he couldn't get his guys so he asked Mike can you throw together a band and Mike had been playing with me as a guitar player and he said well I got this band so we started we were Dan Gallagher's band so we had a house gig at the Peel Pub on King Street for three years or something 
And at the time, he was doing beach volleyball on TSN. So the whole place was rammed with beach volleyball <laughs> players every week. It was just like, you know, my God. So, uh, and he got great corporate gigs. And then he died, too. He passed away in 2000, I think. Um, and we really had a kinship and we played well together. So we've been playing together now for 20 years, 22 years. Wow. So on the 20th anniversary, I said, we should do something special. Let's do a gig. And there's a place in Oakville called the moonshine, which is everybody plays there. Mm -hmm. You know, Kelly Joe Phelps has played there. The sisters Euclid play there all the time. It's a great music venue. So, uh, I said, let's do like a party. And then I thought, why don't we get some guests, you know, and kind of make it into like a last waltz kind of thing or something along those lines. And then it's, I stumbled on this name, The Ramble, because of LeVon Helms' Midnight Ramble. Right. So we decided that we were going to do a guest each month. And we did three of them. So our first guest was Steve Mariner, bless his heart. Thank you, Steve. And uh, then we had Jim Boskill and Mike Branton. So that was our first three months, just to see, right. you know. And, man, it was crazy. It took off. So we just decided to do it every month. It's been almost two years. Wow. Which is amazing. So now, you know, this band that's been kicking around in stupid bars with TVs and dartboards for 20 years, literally, is now being witnessed by people who are attentive audiences rather than just sort of there to have the wings or what have you which is really nice for us, you know? Yeah. And also, I get to stay home and play with my heroes. Like, literally, my heroes. Playing guitar, no less, you know? <laughs> which And everybody, it's funny, all these people show up and go, I didn't know you played guitar, <laughs> which is nice. I kind of like that. Okay, know? and then these people come as special guests, so these are songs that you're not rehearsing. They're... We don't do, the, the, the rule is nothing. No talk, no nothing. When we get on stage, we decide what we're going to do. We have a cartel of tunes that we have that, you know, are easy for people. Uh, and, and then they, they and then, basic blues standards or rock standards? Sometimes, sometimes rock standards. Sometimes, uh, you know... The nice thing is, is I, I've played with a lot of these musicians enough to know their level of skill right. and what I can throw at them. And, and uh, man, some of them have just been... Un and, you know, they bring their cartel of songs, too. I mean, once a musician settles in with a band, they get an idea of w whether or not they can handle something. There's been very few train wrecks, if any. You know, there's been nothing that was really glaringly bad <laughs> where we literally would have to stop or anything. But there's been a few things like it could have been better, certainly. But, I mean, that's part of the fun. It's awesome. I love that. <laughs> that sense of adventure. And everyone's going on the adventure with us. Right. But, I mean, you know, we've had Kevin Bright. There's really nothing you can give Kevin that he's not going to be able to handle. Right. Or Bo Skill, he's been there too. They know everything, you know, or they can handle anything, basically, that a bunch so, of so like slobs come, from the suburbs can do. But you make it sound like they're playing with you as opposed to you playing with them? That's so. kind of what it is, oh, okay. because we sort of want them to... Uh, my idea was, because I'd always done... I've subbed for people at these, you know, guest yeah, things. Yeah. And I always find that the guests, uh, you know, there's that stress of having to come up with tunes. And sometimes the guests will stand there and sort of draw a blank and say, hmm, okay, what can I do? Because, you know, for whatever reason, they're not feeling it or whatever. I didn't want them to feel that way. I just right. wanted them to come in and maybe first few songs, just like 
play a solo or, you know, whatever. Just ease into this and feel like you're part of the group. And we've been together 20 years, so we can carry things while they figure out their tone right. or whatever they got to do. And it's, it's always worked out. All, all the guests so far have wanted to come back. That's a good sign. Which is a good sign. And that's all I care about. I, I said to the guys, we don't care about money. We don't care about anything. Let's, like, make sure the guests are happy. That's all we want. It's just happy guests. Because if they're having fun, then it translates, you know, to everyone. So how do you approach music differently with this group, which is your group, versus being hired as a musician to play bass or guitar? Or do you... These, these guys are, like, we're our own comfy shoes, when we put put on that pair of shoes, we're, it, we do whatever we want, basically. It doesn't matter where we're playing, what like even on festival stages, we. But the thing is, is we come off as relaxed, right, and confident. After twenty two years, yeah, like, and I love it because I, I I really honestly believe that that band, the Beat Heathens, they're called. I really honestly believe that they can hold their own on any stage, anywhere. Um, so, I mean, it just feels like I don't really have to, like Jimi Hendrix said, there's no buttons to push. Mm-hmm. You just go and do it, and it's great. We have a language, and it's turned into a bit of a jam band, which is nice. We've evolved into what we are after 20 years, which is a really beautiful thing. Like, try and do anything with anyone for 20 years, you know? Really, right. two other people, just do anything with them for 20 years. Work with them at work. It's impossible without going through the ringer and like, you know, through all of this stuff that I've described to you, this almost entire career, they've been there. So, you know, that's pretty, that that speaks volumes to, you know, where, where we are as people when we play together, I think. We're just sort of in each other's back pockets, really. Have you recorded together? Not really. We did one live record about 15 years ago, but... that's the beauty of it it kind of just exists under the surface of everything else and you know i i dip back in the well after all this blues and bass stuff and then i can just play guitar and goof off for a little while with my friends you know and and so how much do you write on your own write yeah not at all anymore i used to write incessantly yeah because in that that big daddy g album you had a few songs dave recorded my stuff uh jimmy boskill recorded one or two of my songs uh and johnny max did a couple of my songs i really did like songwriting and i do like songwriting i have an album actually in the can that i've never released because i you know i don't want to go through all of that but i had some great Sorry, what do you want to go through uh you know like the cd release and the stress of fi- finding musicians and rehearsing them and all of that and i don't know and i also just got b- busy you know <laughs> I got too busy to, I don't know, finish it. Right. But I had Richard Bell played on it. I had a really great group of musicians. Tortoise, I can't remember. Ted Peacock played drums. Is Tortoise playing anymore? No, not, not really. Anymore. Which is a real shame. Yeah, he's he takes care of special needs kids. Right. He's a really special person, actually. He's a great, great musician, highly underrated, and a really, really great guy. Yeah. You know. But he doesn't play anymore. I think he gets the itch. Uh, I did a gig with Dylan Wickens a couple of years ago at Kitchener Blues Fest, maybe. And Tortoise came up and played a couple of songs with us. And then Branton and I had a, a, a thing in Milton for a while, and we had him as a guest. And he was fabulous. He's just like, he's 
music's part of his body too. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just something about that guy. He's such a musical musician. Yeah. So you've mentioned a couple of times about staying home, but I know you've toured. You've toured with yeah. Jimmy. You went to Europe a number of times. Is touring not something you enjoy? Oh, I love touring. Um, really, what happened was, is my wife got pregnant. And I, you know, and Jim, Jim was at that point where he was really hitting a peak, you know, in his solo thing. And I was starting to get a bit worried, you know, like they were talking about going to Australia. And I, I, when we found out Angie was pregnant, my wife, um, who's also a brilliant musician, Angie Grant. And how do you play with her? Does she she do a lot of gigs or not? Yeah, she does a few now. I mean, she's getting back into it now because, you know, she's... She comes and goes, but she's she's a really great songwriter and great musician. That's why I fell in love with her because she wrote such great songs, and uh, she has a great album out that she did a few years back too. So, uh, Spotify, Angie Grant, uh, just uh, you know, she also sang a lot of commercial jingles that we're familiar with, which yeah. I won't bore you with or, or go into because she'll probably get mad at me. So I, we found out she was pregnant and then I had to do a seven week or an eight week tour with Jim in Europe. And when I got back, she was, you know, quite far along and I thought, geez, and you know, now we're going to Australia and then we're going to the UK. And I thought, oh man, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. And also I'd hit a point where I, I needed to stop, you know? And uh, I found that when I stopped, uh, I was a bit misfitty for a bit, but you know what? It, it was, what does that mean? Well, I, I made up a word, see? <laughs> I was a bit of a misfit. Like, I just kind of felt displaced, you know, when yeah. you're so used to living out of a suitcase. Um, but I've really settled into it, you know? I'll tour. I mean, it has to be the right situation. I'm at a point in my music career where if it's not something I want to do, I'm not doing it. Sorry. Right. It's not going to happen. Uh, you know, this is almost 40 years, you know, I think, I think I've, I've gotten to a point where I can choose what I want to do. And usually the things that I choose and the things I get given are awesome. I've had so many great, I've been the luckiest, luckiest hack musician that's ever walked the face of the planet. Just sitting here, like, even when you asked me to do this, I thought, wait a second, (laughs) Are you kidding me? But, I mean, I fell ass backwards into playing with Jimmy Boskill. How did that happen? Uh, Tortoise recommended me. And then when I did those three gigs out west, I got home and Steve, his dad, who was managing, tour managing, sent me an email with a list of dates after that. Oh, we're opening for Johnny Winter next next month. Like, oh, okay. So for a while, it was me and Tortoise and Al Cross. And then... Tortoise wasn't in the band. I, he wanted to do a trio. So it was me and, and Jim and Al Cross for about a year and a half. Like, holy geez. That's a really, that's a, probably a really coveted gig. Those are really great musicians, right. you know? What the hell? What was I doing there? I don't know. Like, it just, that <laughs> stuff happens to me all the time. Like, wait a second. Hold well, on. Well, maybe there's a reason. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I hope so. I hope I've paid my dues enough, but... I don't know. I still feel like every time I get a gig like that, even when Lance wrote me, I went, I don't know. Are you sure you, but I didn't say that, but you, you know, of course you think it a little bit like, I I wonder, I presume everybody does. I don't think so. 
You don't think so? Well, there's some musicians who are just confident enough, and that's what they do, and they know what what they have to do. I mean, I'm a scatterbrain, <laughs> you know? I'm really not the right guy for your gig, you know? Yet, yet people great keep advertising. calling you. <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I, I guess I... I don't know. I don't know why. Did you I ever question being a musician? Did you ever think, oh man, what all I the doing? time? But I couldn't stop. It's an addiction, you know. And so when people call you, um, and let's say it's not inconvenient and it's not a um, a conflict to your schedule, how do you decide whether you take this project on or not? Mm. Uh, it really. If it's if I have the time to do it, I don't know. It just has to speak to me somehow, you know, um, because I make money elsewhere. So uh, I'm not going to say that money doesn't matter or it's not a factor. I mean, you know, that plays into it too. Okay, if I'm so honest tell me about, about that. It, you know. The the um, the psychology behind that, the fact that you do make money elsewhere, mm-hmm. does that make you a better player or? it doesn't because I don't play unless I absolutely have to unfortunately like this is where my playing has actually fallen off a lot in the past number of years I've adjusted the way I play because I have hand pain and because I'm not playing as much you know Uh, because I used to practice and jam and play when you're on the road you're you know you're in hotels and you're just goofing off with your instrument anyway when you're touring and, and all of that but I'm finding now I'm not really playing unless I'm learning a gig or I'm doing a gig so I don't know I so if I ask you how do you get better are you getting better I'm not getting better uh in terms of my technical prowess probably not but I think I am getting better in in terms of being a more mature musician I'm getting to be a better musician every day because I'm still learning right right and I still play with people who are light years beyond anything I could ever hope to be. And that's how I learned everything I know, is playing with the best. I've been lucky to play with the best, you know? And at no point was there ever a plan? There was a plan, but it wasn't the, the plan that I had. What, I, what my career trajectory was was not what I planned at all. I mean, I was going to be in the Beatles, right? where I was going to be a songwriter, a singer-songwriter, or do my own thing. And I was going to be a guitar player, too. Like, that was really the trajectory when you're a teenager. Right. But I have no complaints, man. Not one. It's funny, because somebody else recently said that they were going to be in the Beatles, so... Everybody was going to be in the Beatles. We all were. Don't. And if they say they weren't, they're lying. 100%. I don't know. You know how it is. Like, you don't... Like, your career probably took a couple turns you certainly didn't expect, too, right? It's not like I planned any of this. Yeah. yeah. And there's a beauty in that, too, because at least you're following your heart, you know, to a degree, anyway. I mean, I find that that's all I'm doing musically now is just doing whatever the hell I want. Sorry, that's what I'm going to do. If if you throw a gig at me and I want to do it, I'm going to do it. Right. That means I, and I, if I'm there, it means I want to be there. And does it excite you the same way when... when when Lance calls you and says, we need you to do this, and there's work ahead of you, and you got to put in a lot of hours to learn the material, but is that the part that you like, or is it the part of getting on stage? Or I, You know what? My favorite part was being asked. That was really the most important part. 
and then it's downhill from the, there. Well, the most the most fun was the the gig. I mean, just like I don't know, because I don't know, being a fan of it, being parked in front of those horns and just hearing that gigantic band together, and uh, you know, and also Terry Danko sang, who was Rick Danko's brother, which was like kind of jarring for me, you know, like being able to sort of have this really second degree of separation from the real thing. And, and, you know, these guys are really important to me. This mm-hmm. music's really important to me. So to be playing it start to finish in one night is one thing to be playing it with some of the most brilliant musicians in the country in front of a live audience with the greatest guests, you know, Chuck Jackson and Johnny Max and Keisha Wint and Matt Weininger. Like, I mean, it's a cavalcade of talent. And then to have Terry Danko come out and, and you know, Jerome Avis plays drums and his godfather was LeVon Helm and his dad was, Bill Avis was the tour manager for the band. Like, you're not going to get closer to right. those guys than this now. And it was pretty unique and pretty special. So, yeah, I mean, that was the most fun. But the most important thing, uh, I mean, it was really an honor to be asked. Any leap I take is like, to me now, is blows my mind. Blows my mind. Do you think you appreciate it more now than ever before? God, yes. Why do you think that is? Youth is wasted on the young, Mako. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah, I do know that. <laughs> it's, I didn't appreciate anything. I just, you know... And I, I went through these, you know, pits of depression and all of that stuff that, you know, you got to be a sad person to be an artist, you know, all of that crap and feeling sorry for myself. And, you know, I remember Michael Keith even saying to me, you know, you, you are touring with one of the most highly regarded acts in the country right now. And all you do is complain, you know. And it's true. Like, you don't really appreciate what's going on until you have that retrospect, right? How did you get that retrospect? Other than having another birthday? Well, like, was there a point where you thought, I need to look at this differently? I think my kids. My kids changed everything. It was a complete game changer. Everything. How old are they? Uh, seven and five right now. So. And explain how they changed it. Because uh, suddenly I wasn't the most important person in the world anymore. Which I didn't want to be, you know. When you're, when you have kids, you know, it's right. like y- y- there's nothing else that really matters to you. Like when you're depressed or when you're an egomaniac, which I've been at many times in my life, you you're thinking of yourself entirely, one hundred percent. I mean, when somebody needs their diaper changed or somebody is throwing up at three o'clock in the morning and needs you to, you to clean them up, there's no you, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's something that doesn't matter right now. Right. What matters is being a parent. And I mean, it's humbling and all of those things, but it, it was a real learning curve for me, both about myself and about the world, too. You know, you start to see the world a lot differently. And I started to see people differently. I started to see the beauty in everyone that I didn't see. Uh, you know, being jaded and all of those stupid things. Right. So in a lot of ways, I'm really grateful that that happened to me. And at this point in my life, while I can still play and take advantage of these feelings that I have, you know, this, this internal sunshine that my kids have brought to my life, you know. 
Not that I don't get miserable or, you know, complain. <laughs> but but man, oh man, I, I hate to think where I would be without them. And my wife. My wife is an extremely positive influence. Like, I think when you surrender to love and try and ditch fear, as she tells me all the time. Um, <laughs> well, she, you know, Twice on the weekend. She, but this is the thing I always say. The thing about wives is that they're right, you know? I know. I know. Isn't it something? It is something. Tell me why you don't write anymore. If writing was something you, you love to do, and you used to do it a lot, why does that? I <laughs> is I really it just don't a know. time just issue? just stopped. I think it stopped. I don't know. I found that when I was writing, I was in a you know, period of not the, the you know, kind of dark period. Um, I mean, I wrote since I was a kid. I don't know. I, I guess I kind of just, the well might have run dry or, my, you know, yeah, maybe my kids do occupy my time. I haven't flexed the muscle in a while. Although John Finley did a movie for his brother, did a soundtrack for a movie for his brother, a short film, and they needed a closing song. So he sent me some music to, like, the kind of thing that he wanted. And I wrote a tune, and it came out really great. I was really happy So this with is it. lyrics or music? Both. Okay. And uh, I was really, and John produced it, and I was really, really happy. And I thought, geez, you know, I, I should flex this muscle more often. But then it kind of just fell to the wayside. My wife's writing now, and it's, it's putting the flame under me a little bit. But uh, she's a really good writer, so I don't know <laughs> if I might be a little bit too intimidated to try. But we'll see, you know. Is she thinking of doing another album? Is that I hope so. I really do. She's thinking of it, and I, I sincerely hope she does, because she's... Oh, she's just so great, you know. So where is she at her career? Well, you know, we're kind of in the same place. We basically play when we want to, although mm -hmm. she doesn't play as often, you know. Um, we do duos together, and she'll do occasional band gigs, and we'll just get out some ringers, you know, some of our friends. And we've had some great bands for her, Mitch Lewis and Vince Macaron and... Uh, you know, Rob Gusevs has done a couple, and Kevin Vino. We've had some really great players. Is that her interest? I mean, does she think, if she's writing, does she just want to record something, or does she want to play? I'm not sure. I don't think she really thinks past, you know, right now, right. which is kind of nice. I, and, you know, I, I'm sort of in the same boat. I'm not really trying to think of anything I can do. If, if I start doing something, or she starts, which it will happen. We, we just have to be motivated and... I don't know. I don't know what we're thinking. We might just do something for ourselves, you know? Right. I always find it, I mean, I just think if I could write or record a song, then I would. Hmm. So I find it really strange that you could have this album that you started but never finished and it doesn't really bother you that it's not. It finished. does kind of bother me, but at the same time, I'm in a way different place than I was when I did it, which is about 15 years ago. Oh, okay. And... I mean, some of the songs are really great. So, um, one of them, Johnny recorded. He liked it so much. So, uh, which is a bummer because it, uh, my version was pretty good too. Uh, but, <laughs> well, you know, and I'm glad I didn't put it out because I could do a better one now. Yeah. Easily do a better one with better, you know, a better arrangement or what have you. You know, like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why I never did. I guess I was just, I really didn't want to go through all of the hassle of like manufacture. You know what it is? I'm a sideman. I've played with so many people and I've seen the stress and all of the things that they have on their shoulders to try and put things together. And I thought, geez, I really don't even want to 
be part of that. It's so much nicer being a sideman, you know? Right. I can unplug my instrument, I can put it in the case, and I can go home, and I can wait for them to call me. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of people go under a lot of stress over these things and lose a lot of money. And, you know, it's a hard job yeah. being an artist. A really, really hard job. And, uh, you know, it's hard enough being a sideman. I wouldn't want to take that on. And tell me, as you see it, what is the role of a sideman? Shut up. <laughs> That's the role. No, I, I'm, I don't know. It depends on what you're being hired for. If you're sort of a semi-permanent fixture, then make yourself semi-permanent and, you know, show up on time, which I have a tra- problem with, Johnny Max. Uh, and, you know, be a professional. Don't be a slobbering drunk don't be a you know fall down stoner uh although i've been guilty of both of those <laughs> and you know so uh, you know from experience oh yeah well this is you learn a lesson right it's 40 percent ability and 60 percent you know personality that's how you get the gig nobody wants to travel with a dink so i don't know you know it's <laughs> i don't know what to say like <laughs> all right so i'm gonna wrap this up but right. tell me because it's been an interesting journey and and even though you didn't join the beatles no. you seem to have kept yourself quite busy and doing stuff yeah. and, and now just doing stuff you want to do 100 percent. how would you summarize this journey from the guy who wanted to join the beatles to the guy who sits here in front of me right now? i couldn't ask for a better journey i couldn't ask for a better music career if it ended tomorrow, which I hope it doesn't, but if it did, like I'd have to say it was good. It was good. I did things I never dreamt I would do. Never in a million years and played with the best people. My hero, uh, David Wilcox was a big one because he's also really hard to pin down too. You know, he's a, a, an eccentric fellow. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd opened for him a number of times and just been, you know, he's one of the best guitar players and also just a, 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 just somebody who's 100% committed to what he's doing at all times. I just I have such a respect for him and his career and what he's done. So uh, out west one time, uh, um, Ian D'Souza handed me the bass and said, here, pl- play. It was Kevin Bright and Jimmy Boskill and David Wilcox were the guitar players. Like, that was a pretty great moment. Wow. And Jeff Healy, I've I grew up, you know, in the 80s. We would all, we, I remember we all went to see Roadhouse at the theater, and when Jeff came on the screen, everybody applauded, you know, because he was a local boy. And we, I went, remember going to see him in the Phantoms at the Diamond and, like, to be able to play with him. Right. You know, people like that. And Kevin Bright, who was a big hero, you know. And, you know, it just happens over and over. Richard Bell, who I used to go and see with a band, and Colin Linden became a, a peer, mm-hmm. played on my records. Al Cross, who, uh, you know, I used to, that second big, those first two Big Sugar records were really, really big for all of us suburban kids, you know. Mike Branton, too, and and uh, to play with him was, I remember thinking, this is crazy, you know. And now all these people are my peers, you know. These people I listened to on record or used to go and see and drool over, I play with them, Yeah, you know. So it really was like even I, just a, I'll say this quickly too because these guys deserve shoutouts too. So I did a record with Michael Theodore and the band was Tom Griffiths on bass and uh, Gary Taylor on drums 
and Rob Gusev's on keys. Now, Rob and Gary were in the Sisters Euclid when I used to go and drool over that band every week. So to be playing guitar in a band with those two guys was really, like, emotional for me, you know? Like, you know, how I could can I complain imagine. about this career that I've had where I've met and played with some of my favorite people, you know? So that's really how I would sum it up. It's been an awesome ride. I hope it's not over, but man, if it isn't, I'm going to keep trucking. And uh, maybe there's more thrills in store, but every time I play now is a thrill. You know? well, thanks for sharing this with me. I really appreciate you doing Marco, this. Marco, thank you so much for having me, and it was a really fun time. Mm-hmm.